0: Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Block. After nearly 11 years in federal politics, former Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole gave his last speech to Parliament. He announced back in March that he was stepping down. In a session that has been marked by heated partisan attacks, O'Toole had a warning for MPs.
1: We are becoming... Elected officials who judge our self-worth by how many likes we get on social media, but now not how many lives we change in the real world. Performance politics is fueling polarization. Virtue signaling is replacing discussion.
0: Joining me now to talk about that speech and his time in politics is Conservative MP Aaron O'Toole. Aaron, great to see you.
1: Good to be back.
0: This is full circle. I remember your, your first interview that we did when you became an MP. Your first interview when you became a minister. Now you're exiting politics. You've seen quite a time in Canadian history. What's your biggest takeaway from your experience?
1: I just had. It's been an honor to serve in all roles. Um, obviously, I gave my first interview as the Veterans Minister with with you because of your background in defense and supporting our veterans. Um, as a veteran myself, that was a real honor. Um, I've seen a lot of positives in politics. I've seen some uh, of the dark side of it and the, the challenges and the stresses on families. And so it's a bit bittersweet because I really love Parliament, but I'm also excited about returning to the private sector and kind of an international role. And I tried to leave my colleagues in the House on all sides with a bit of a message based on my, my 10 years in, in public life, almost 11. and Um, I hope a lot of it takes to heart because you know we're gonna have a hard time drawing in experienced and passionate people if it seems from the outside to be so toxic and divisive. You know internally we actually get along a lot better than people see on social media.
0: You had a tough experience with your party You got stabbed in the back, basically, by your own colleagues. You then watched it spin out into support for the convoy, comments about conspiracy theories, which you raised in the House, uh, and this polarization of politics. I'm wondering how much the changes in the Conservative Party that have happened led to your decision to retire from politics. Was, Was that a factor?
1: Not really. I think each leader deserves the ability to run the ball down the field. And I think Pierre deserves that without the former leader being there for the next play or or barking stuff from the sidelines. Anytime I'd be in the house and the environment would come up, uh, Mr. Guibault or people would wedge off my policies in the past with what Pierre needs to do. I think um, he deserves the opportunity to, to do that unencumbered by me
0: leaders are expected to set a tone and it's been a very terse one in parliament. One of the big factors has been China. And after you lost the election in in 2021, we had heard whispers from conservatives that there was beliefs, there was Chinese interference. This was largely dismissed by the liberal government as sour grapes. Um, how much of what has unfolded publicly has surprised you on the foreign interference file? And how much were things that you believed to be true but maybe just didn't have the proof of at the time?
1: It's a good question. I, I was surprised by the extent of knowledge by our security agencies of operations by uh, the United Front Work Department, for example. Um, direct actions by the communist regime in Beijing on our politics. In light of that, I think the government's approach needs to be scrutinized. I don't think they've done enough to to safeguard our elections, both in 2019 and in 2021. So while we saw the WeChat, we saw some of the pressure Canadians were feeling with respect to their vote, to know that there was a sense that uh, our security agencies were aware of some degree of coordination and, and some role of some folks on the ground in this was quite concerning. So I've always said, let's Let's use this as an example where all parties can say, look, over 50 years, conservatives will be in, liberals will be in. Let's make this nonpartisan. Let's fix holes in our system. Let's maybe clean up certain areas where foreign money or influence can be getting in to make sure that communities in in ethnic communities aren't feeling pressured to, to vote a certain way or not to vote. They've come to Canada for liberty and opportunity not to have Pressure from the state they left on them here, so we owe it to millions of Canadians to get this right, and that's why I think an inquiry with the opposition alignment on who the chair or chairs will be is what's needed.
0: Do you think that Beijing cost you the election?
1: No, I've been very clear in that. Uh, Mr. Trudeau won. I congratulated him on the phone. I congratulated him publicly. Was I disappointed? Yes. Did. I think he used the vaccine issue to cause divisions that we're still feeling today. The trucks that were here when I left the leadership were a result of those policies. But no, we wouldn't have won the election. But three or four or five seats might have been flipped. And every seat counts. And we can't... It was a very
0: close election.
1: It was a close election. And I don't want anyone, whether they live in Richmond or Richmond Hill... To make it seem like Ottawa doesn't care about the results in their riding because it's just one riding, you know. Some liberals say, "Oh, it's just a few ridings." Every riding matters, and if we know that there's influence and Csis and some agencies have known, what is the government doing to stop it? I don't think Mr. Trudeau has done enough. That's why he's avoiding a national inquiry at all costs. To think that there was a national security warrant issued on a major Liberal organizer in Ontario, and it sat on Bill Blair's desk. The very fact there was a warrant means there's evidence. So these are big questions. These aren't little political um, spin-of-the-day questions. This is, are we doing enough to safeguard a democracy? I don't think the Prime Minister has. He won the election, but let's not think about the last election. Let's think about safeguarding the next 10.
0: You were targeted personally by Beijing, and I believe you've been told that this will likely continue for some time. Once you kind of pop up on their list, you're there for a while. Are you concerned about your safety, about your family's safety?
1: I'm not. And, and the nice thing is the, the folks at CSIS, and I, I applaud what our intelligence services do. I consider them alongside our, our military and first responders as serving the national interest. Um, they always said they'd be there in the future for advice if do, I could you trust
0: that, though, And they didn't tell you in the past and they apparently didn't tell the government and apparently also didn't tell David Johnston, who came out with his report, and then you had information that countered it?
1: That's all the political masters. That's the ministers where it sits on their desks. That's the ministers who don't read their emails. We now have a government that is really the Keystone Cops. They don't read their emails. They misrepresent facts. You know, we've got the public safety minister on, on that now. That should really concern Canadians. I don't think we're we're a serious country, I said in a, a recent essay. We've got to get serious because the world is, our allies are, and perhaps that's why Canada's not in AUKUS, the alliance with the other Five Eyes security partners. We're being left out of things because the Liberal government doesn't seem serious. So I hope a national inquiry will get to the bottom of this, not just to see what happened. What can we do going forward? Do we have to clean up Nominations, do we have to be, you know, more vetting and more intelligence briefing early on? I think politicians deserve to know at the time if they're being targeted, not two years later, like Michael Chong or Jenny Kwan or myself. Do does Kenny Chu or some of the people that I think I know were targeted, they should get briefings now. Do they do they not get a briefing because they're still not in Parliament? Well, They may not be in Parliament because of the interference. I think we owe them that briefing. So there's so many questions here, Mercedes. There are well-qualified people to, to lead this, but the government needs to consult with the opposition parties. We've got to take the politics out of this and say, look, I think we're the greatest democracy in the world. We should care about safeguarding it so that it can't be tampered with by foreign interests.
0: We just have a few moments left, but I do want to get your take on defence and security. You are a veteran of the Royal Canadian Air Force. You were Veterans Affairs Minister. This country's making a lot of big promises when it comes to defence, including deploying tanks to Latvia, um, but they're still not the spending levels. What do you think needs to happen there?
1: We need to make our NATO targets. That was in my speech. Lester Pearson helped draft the NATO charter we were in both world wars before the united states we've always served where there are our interests or values at stake and now with war in ukraine you know i'm trying to think and making sure people think about what's going on in ukraine every day we have to be a leader in nato and that means paying our fair share and what does that mean giving our people the equipment they need having more security and presence in our arctic at a time where russia has more ice breakers now than we have ever had. So I, I do have confidence in Minister Anand. I've seen a real commitment for her to, to, um, to support the men and women in uniform, to, to move forward on Ukraine and tanks. You know, some of the things I've suggested to her, um, she is moving on already. She needs the support of the Prime Minister and Minister Freeland. The Deputy Prime Minister cares deeply about Ukraine, but show us the money. The military need the kit When we have soldiers buying their own helmets in Lafayette, that's a tragedy for a leading nation like Canada. So I think Canadians, of all political stripes, want our men and women to have the equipment they need to do the job we send them to do. And at this time in our world history, we need to be doing more.
0: Aaron O'Toole. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the many interviews over the years and your time in politics serving the country. I believe people who run uh, truly believe that they want to make the world a better place, and we look forward to your post-political analysis hopefully soon.
1: I hope so, and I'll continue to be a viewer of the West Block. (laughs) Thank
0: you. With Parliament wrapping this week for the summer, the Liberals are on the defensive after a number of political missteps. The latest involving embattled public safety minister Marco Mendicino. He's facing yet another allegation of fumbling his file after public outrage that serial rapist and murderer Paul Bernardo was transferred out of a maximum security prison. Mendicino says he wasn't briefed until after the transfer, despite his staff being warned months ago.
1: I have also made it clear to my staff that this should have been briefed immediately. Corrective steps have been taken. I have dealt with it. He's throwing his staff under the bus. Will he do the only honourable thing that is left for him to do and resign?
0: The political pressure facing Mendicino comes as the government is still dealing with the fallout from its response to foreign interference. Joining me now to talk about this is The Globe and Mail's Ottawa bureau chief, Robert Fife and Stephanie Lovitz from the Toronto Star. Great to see you both. Hello. Thanks for having us. Bit of a rough week for the government, in particular Marco Mendicino. The opposition have been calling for him to resign. He's standing fast on his file. Bob, do you think that he survives this? Well, he may
2: survive this in terms of staying in cabinet, but he will not survive it as being the public safety minister. I don't think we all all heard the rumors that there is. We expect a cabinet shuffle, uh, probably in the next three or four weeks. uh, Certainly before Mr. Trudeau goes on his holidays. I cannot imagine that Marco Manicino can remain in that. Role given his very poor performance in handling the Paul Bernardo case, but also in earlier a couple of months ago, he was also responsible for a major screw up in going after regular kind of guns that farmers and hunters use at the last minute putting this in for political purposes. It blew up in his face. They had to withdraw the legislation, redo it. Uh, so he's caused them a lot of problem in those two issues. And, he, and this week has just been a disaster for him. I mean, being chased down the hall by journalists, not being able to explain why nobody would come to him with like Paul Bernardo, this infamous Canadian who has killed three women, including Carla Homonka's sister. And nobody thought to tell him, And the Prime Minister the same thing? Because uh, the Prime, Prime Minister's Minister knew office about knew as this well. Like, this is a big problem with this government. Nobody it seems reads any emails or memos from them, whether it's on Chinese foreign interference, it's on whether it's on Afghanistan, in the case of defend, then Defense Minister Harjit Singh, and now in the case of, uh, of Mr. Uh, Mendocino. It, it, they look like this government is at the end of the rope and, it, and it's showing itself to be completely incompetent.
0: Steph, you look at this and, and I think they not only how but why. How is it possible that staffers know about something this explosive and it's not being passed on? What does that tell us about sort of the culture of the government um, and, and the broken telephone that just seems to be not only in every department but across departments on issues that blow up in their face that are Largely preventable.
3: Yeah. Isn't that exactly it? I mean, in the, you can almost divorce some of this from the substance of the Bernardo issue and say, OK, so staffers get a briefing and they think, oh, this might be a problem. You know, Before we take it to the boss, maybe we should try and figure out some solutions. That's a fair point on most files. On this particular file, knowing that it was going to be so politically sensitive that they looked into seeing whether they could do something, the fact that they don't take it to the boss right away. But it still remains curious to me, and we still don't really have any answers but how it is the Prime Minister also knew. And the Prime Minister knew the day before Marco Mendicino knew. So did nobody in the Prime Minister's office pick up a phone and say, hey, Marco, what's going on here and do we have a plan? Because on the substantiveness of the issue, I think it's important to realize that do we in this country want our politicians deciding which criminal goes to which prison? I, I don't think that's what we want. Right, because they're, not, they're, so, they're right. not supposed to intervene. They're not supposed that. to intervene. So it's not as though, could Minister Mendocino have done anything to stop this? I don't think he... No is the answer. He should not have done anything to stop it. So what it comes down to for this government is yet another political, optical crisis failure.
2: But it makes you wonder whether... There's an unwritten rule by this government. If it's controversial, like going out, China going after a conservative MP or the case of Paul Bernardo or a senator getting templates on visas, false visas to bring Afghans in, we don't want to know it. Don't tell your minister this. And then we can, they can come out and say, if, they, if people find out about it, then they come out and say, well, I didn't know about it. It was my staff that did it. And, of course, none of these people get fired. And why don't they get fired? Because maybe there is an unwritten rule here. Protect the minister. Protect the prime minister. Don't let, let, give them information on, on uncomfortable stories.
0: It reminds me, Bob, of when we were working together in another network and you were breaking the Senate scandals and there was the $90,000 check from Nigel Wright from Mike Duffy and everyone's saying, how could Stephen Harper not have known about this? And staffers were saying quietly, it's plausible deniability. Don't tell the boss the bad news because then they can be held accountable for it. But but this sort of leaves two potential options, that either you have a culture in the government of don't tell people in power bad things they can't be held accountable for them, or they've lost control of their staff and the bureaucracy.
3: Or is it, what's interesting, it's a cultural choice, because what happened to Nigel Wright? He got the boot, right? It became this, no, you, what did you just do here? And I think that there's a lot of staffers around town, you know, in the last week or so being like, how is it that no one's been fired over this? Like, this is a fireable offense. Why
2: was nobody fired about the case, uh, about uh, Michael, Ch- Michael Chong? Why was nobody in the minister's office fired about that? Or if not, or... Why wasn't the Cesus Director fired? Or
3: why was Mary Ng not fired? Mary Ng Great. found in Good violations letter. of ethics for giving a contract to her friend and she <laughs> endures in this government. So maybe it's a broader question as we've sort of talked about about accountability writ large. Where is the accountability in this government other than the voting booth on election day? Because it doesn't seem like Justin Trudeau is in the business of meeting out a lot of accountability when serious mistakes are getting made.
2: And ministerial responsibility is gone. Um, it you know it used to be uh, you know thirty years ago, ministers would have to actually resign. Over issues. Uh, you don't get this anymore. Instead, they blame the staff or they blame the bureaucracy, which this government is really good at doing, also blaming the bureaucracy for. After coming in and criticizing
0: Stephen Harper for that and saying, well, un- unlike Stephen Harper, do you remember when Justin Trudeau yeah, yeah, was elected? Right. And he went to foreign affairs and, and they all cheered. You. Let me tell you, this government is not very popular with staffers over in uh, GAC these days. But it- it's sort of that uh, change in, in culture. C- can they change the channel coming out of this with something
3: as simple as a cabinet shop? Or, or does this start to stick now, Steph? It's part of a narrative, right? It's a narrative that builds and builds and builds and builds. And this is why the opposition use it to great effect. I mean, to, to to put another notch in their political belt is here's another reason that Justin Trudeau and the liberals cannot be trusted to run the country. Let's set aside the substance of any particular allegation on a given day. It just becomes part of the narrative. And not like setting aside also their accountability problem. The reality is the government continues almost eight years long now it doesn't have any new ideas what did it manage to get done in the last sitting of significant substance except a rebranded you know tax rebate for Canadians which will make a difference but we have a housing crisis in this country we have economic crises in this country we have all sorts of meaningful problems and what we're devoting so much debate about is to the fact that nobody reads their memos and gets anything done. (laughs) <laughs> so the emails are the issue. But it's a bit of a disastrous
0: session for the Liberals. Let's talk about the Conservatives and how they've mm-hmm. come out of this. Bob, what's your analysis? How's Pierre Polyev doing? How are the Conservatives doing? It seems like Canadians in polls are saying they want to change, but they're still not sure that they're, they're ready for that to be the Conservatives. Look,
2: the problem they have is that Mr. Polyev cannot be prime ministerial. He is so uber-partisan he, he he can let other people be the partisan that he's doing. Like he used he's to be the attack dog for Stephen Harper. Get himself another attack dog. You're not you're not the attack dog. You're the leader of the official opposition. Yes, you have to be critical of the government, and you he's raising very important issues: inflation, the economy, the, the all the issues involving Chinese foreign interference and the, the and the whole Paul Bernardo stuff. But he. But he, he needs to come across as somebody who is above the, all the, the really nasty partisanship. And he takes that on himself. So I think that's why you see the polls, Canadians wanting to uh, vote for the Conservatives because they're fed up with the Liberals, they feel they've been around too long. But drawing back about, is this the guy that do it? Because he's, he doesn't come across as very likable and he is really, really partisan.
3: Steph, how do you think they're doing? You know, it's a bit of a, a, a two-part strategy, right? You've got, you've got to get your enemy where you need them, which is weakened and um, looking like they're on the cusp of defeat. And then you have got to present the alternative. You've got to make that pitch. So to some degree, if you think about it, I mean, Mr. Polyev has not even been leader for a year now. He's going into his first summer. It'd be very interesting to see how he plays the summer, where he goes, who he talks to. Are we going to see some sort of more substantive, and I don't want to say rebranding or pivot, because I don't think that's in Mr. Polyev's nature, (laughs) but some sort of personal and political growth shall we say, the ability to tone it down. And I do think to some degree we've seen that in the waning weeks of Parliament.
0: Well, we'll see uh, what uh, both Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Polyev do with their summers. We'll be keeping a close eye on it. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks,
2: Mercedes. Thank you.
0: And now, one last thing. Traditionally, members of Parliament have had to come to Ottawa to do their jobs. But COVID changed that, like so many other things. And the Liberals' motion to permanently give MPs the option to work from home, passed late last week. The government says hybrid parliament will encourage more parents and caregivers to run for public office, who might have otherwise been discouraged by MPs' brutal travel schedules. It could also encourage more women to run for politics, as they often have a heavier domestic load, making it harder for them to go away, especially across the country. But critics say MPs should be willing to travel given their high salaries, and that politics requires in-person negotiations. And relationship building. Backroom talks can build camaraderie across partisan lines and lessen the growing polarization in Canadian politics. So maybe the question isn't just where or how MPs are voting from, but what effect a hybrid house will have on our opportunity for informed debate. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there, especially the ones working on our show, Frank, David, Luigi, Clint and Darren. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block.